I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning for WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. Managing and leading people requires a unique blend of patience and expertise. Patience is paramount to success as a manager because you are inherently managing and leading people who are less experienced in this expertise than you are. Makes sense, right? Pretty simple. If someday you become the director of group sales for a sports organization, you will be influencing the day-to-day actions of people new to the business or junior in their experience. And this means you must be patient in executing your plans, taking their growth with the logical steps forward and steps backwards. It's like having a kid, you know, you work on their reading and as soon as you make some progress, the next day they look at you like they've never seen the word and before and you want to scream like we did this 25 times yesterday and then you realize they're six years old and Child Protective Services has already warned you to stop yelling so much. I'm kidding, of course, Child Protective Services have never yelled at me, even if that story was eh, slightly autobiographical, but this is patience in action. No one learns in a straight line. They go up and they go down. They grasp some concepts quickly and others take longer. They need repetition and an acceptance of their shortcomings. This is a major part of being a thought leader at a company. You can't write people off as hopeless. You have to work with them. You have to find their learning style. You have to figure out ways to translate your information into their best language. Nowhere is this trickier than in the world of sports analytics. Analytics is one of the roles in highest demand for the sports industry, and yet it is a very, very different language than most people speak. The best in this business have learned how to adjust their style to their stakeholders, whether that's a GM, a coach, or a player. You know, some of them are visual learners and need heat maps. Others like massive amounts of data and want it all in one big spreadsheet, while others need to be told a singular thing at a time that can help them advance in their skill set. Everyone learns differently, and as long as they have the passion, the learning will come. I was watching TV with my wife the other night, and she was watching some competition fashion show. And they're talking through designers and styles and sewing techniques. And I said to her, how in the world can anyone keep up with all these designers and techniques? And she looked at me deadpan and said, so who did the Patriots draft in the third round of the 2007 draft? And I said, trick question. They didn't have a third round pick. It took me a minute until I realized she set the trap and I jumped right into it. (laughs) The point is, everyone has the capacity to learn what they are interested in and is placed in front of them with the right format. That's the challenge for those in analytics, taking complex data that their audience wants to understand and making it understandable. The passion is there. It's on the analyst to make it more than just numbers. And that takes patience. Today's guest, Ari Kaplan, understands this more than most. Over the last three decades, he's been finding ways to give pro sports teams an edge through data and having the patience to share the information in the right manner so that it can make a difference. This interview is fascinating. I learned so much because I have the passion for knowledge and Ari has the patience to deliver it in a way that I and anyone can understand it. So where do you fit in? Let's find out. Here's Ari Kaplan. 
Hey, Ari, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, Brian? I am good. I'm really excited to talk to you on a lot of different fronts. Obviously, you're so deep and your background is so intense in the world of statistical analysis. You're teaching online courses in regards to baseball analytics and data science, but also just about what's going on in the world right now and how analytics is still adjusting to our current pandemic. So give me a little bit of an overview. Obviously, sports are suspended but what are teams doing now and how are you involved in it as far as from your background in analytics? How are things progressing right now? Yeah, well, we, we are living clearly in an unprecedented time and many industries are uh, being challenged with the global pandemic of everything from, you know, stores shutting down. Um, but, uh, you know, there are also pockets where there's a lot of strength, um, you know, makers of uh, cleaning supplies and, uh, you know, some of the healthcare are, you know, can't keep up with the demand. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag uh, economically, um, but in the world of sports, um, you know, eSports has been picking up, but the actual teams themselves, as you say, they're completely shut down um, across all sports, uh, almost all sports globally. So, you know, the challenge is, Let's just take Major League Baseball organizations. They don't have games, but they have um, you know their full staff that typically is swamped during a game day. Uh, eight hours a day are preparing for a game, doing the game, post-game. So now they have extra time on their hands, and they're looking for different uh, different work that can help their bottom line. You know, assuming that you know the, the game will either start later this season or you know, almost uh, certainly some point next season. So ramping up on analytics is high on their list. Um, I, I should also say I now consult with several major league baseball organizations, NHL, uh, NBA, and Premier League uh, through, through my work, a company called Data Robot, which does uh, some advanced artificial intelligence. Um, and you know, what I'm seeing is uh, you know, analysts are now looking to say, what data sets do we have? What type of analytics can we ramp up on? What software platforms might we, we, we learn? What classes might I take? Um, or, you know, self-guided education? You know, in other words, how can I ramp up on our analytic capabilities during this, uh, you know, these uh, challenging times where the, the games are just not happening? Yeah, it sounds like you might have more of a captive audience now. Like you're saying that essentially during the season, the decision makers can be so glommed on to the events happening before them and, and, and not necessarily, maybe, I don't know, taking the time or really digging into the data that you're able to present. And that right now, you might actually have a greater window to be an influencer. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, the, the, um, you know, the, the challenge when there's a... a a season going on is you have the games themselves and then uh, you know after the games uh, doing development of players doing coaching of players and with all that on on pause yeah it's um, you know a, you know readily captive and, and willing audience to say you know what what can I do in, in the meantime how can I you know how can I if you're on the lower end of the analytic skill start ramping up so I can compete with teams that have 20 or 30 uh, full-time data scientists or analysts. And if you're already on the leading side of, of the game where you have an established environment, you're looking, how can I maintain my, 
analytic advantage over other teams. So, yeah, exactly. But where, wherever your organization sits on the spectrum, uh, analytics, data science is, uh, is on the forefront. And one reason that is is, uh, you know, we'll talk about how I got into the game, but the last couple of years has been just an explosion of tons of data, uh, video data, sensor type of data. Um, so there's been this backlog of uh, understanding multiple terabytes of data. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's a huge amount of information on every single game. Um, so, so at the end of the year, you, you're talking an immense amount of information that simply has been going unprocessed since people were uh, quite honestly too busy otherwise. Yeah. Okay. So that's fascinating. And so essentially you've got the data, but without context or interpretation or, uh, you know, putting it into your organizational philosophy or really understanding it, then it's just a bunch of data, right? So you're saying now you have the time and the demand or the interest for people to say, Hey, let's, let's look into this. Let's see what we can do with this and turn it into something more actionable. Is that kind of what's happening? Yeah, totally. And, and, you, you you found the word of the day actionable. Oh, good! I did. That there's awesome. so much information. <laughs> um, you know, what what can I do with it? You don't want it to be just an educational or academic exercise to find, you know, like trivia, pursuit, um, interesting facts. You want it to be actionable. What are the strengths or weaknesses or habits of our players or our opponents' players, and uh, what what can we take action on to? to help that player to help select a player or trade for a player. So this is funny. So we, I have this entire outline of questions that I kind of line up and I get myself ready for, and I have a direction I want to go. And I, we almost always in every one of these interviews go off the rails. You know, it's just, it's just funny because I'm a naturally curious person and I want to just, I hear you saying things and I just want to feed off of them. But I wanted to know in that mode of curiosity, you sound that way as well, that you are just a naturally curious person who wants to get to the answers of things. Is that accurate? And is that an important skill set for somebody that wants to work in data science and analytics? Yeah, that totally describes me. Glad you are part of the club. <laughs> Thank and, you. I'm just not smart <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, for, for getting a job in the game, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, five years ago, uh, you know, the skill set was to have like all of the above, where all of the above is somebody who knows Python programming, somebody that knows SQL database programming, somebody that can do like visuals, like the graphs and heat maps that, that players use, uh, and then somebody that can communicate to the coaches and players, as well as somebody who's that naturally curious uh, uh, approach. And the good news is uh, organizations have like at least one of each of the above. So you no longer need to be a jack of all trades. Um, if Python or data science programming is not your forte, you could be you know, what we call the business analyst or the business user, the person that asks questions or the person that pokes holes saying, you know, hey, you forgot to include injury information. You know, you're re making a recommendation to the GM for a player that just had Tommy John and won't pitch this year, you know, go back and filter out those players. So. Uh, there, there's a huge role for people that are naturally curious, um, poking holes in how the data is interpreted, poking holes in what data is not being collected that could or should, and how do you adjust for uncertainty? 
so yeah, to, to, totally that bodes well in these days for, for getting a, a job in the, the game. Maybe that's my niche. I can just poke holes in things. I think I'd be solid at that. <laughs> so let's go backwards a little bit before we move deeper forward, because I love the direction this is headed already. But I want to understand a little bit more about you and your background in analytics and all of the data science that you're talking about. So you went to Caltech. And most, I, I, obviously, stereotyping here, but it seems like Caltech is like the, the playground for NASA scientists, some seismological laboratory or some astronomical observatory. And yet you took that and went into sports. So why was sports your drive, your purpose, your why? Why did, why did sports appeal to you so much? Yeah, so, yeah, Caltech, for those who don't know, the California Institute of Technology the popular TV show Big Bang Theory is, uh, you know, based on they, they mentioned Caltech and um, you know characters there. It's kind of like my experience uh, with the full spectrum of interesting people. And yeah, they run actually Jet Propulsion Labs, which is a part of NASA, right? Uh, which was one of my dreams in, in high school. And I, I guess at a high level, I personally like being where. Uh, where I'm solving a new problem, we're coming up with a, a different way to innovate something, whatever that happens to be. And I tend to find myself once there's like a system in place, like somebody already developed the internet, you know, it's time to move on and, and do the next thing. <laughs> somebody so took that idea, huh? For yeah. Me, yeah, sports was the path for me since I, uh, you know, imagine how much innovation is going on now in sports analytics, but Back, um, you know, you're talking the late uh, 1980s when I was an undergraduate in the early 90s. Nobody, I, I would say like a handful of people, Bill James, Pete Palmer, Eddie Epstein, myself, were like the, the, the four people that I know of uh, back then that uh, were looking at analytics. So it was really exciting. Nobody um, was even nobody I knew of was, was doing it. So it was very exciting. There was no internet to speak of. I think there were 400 websites uh, in the whole world at the time. Email didn't exist unless you were uh, in academia or government. Uh, box scores, you had to go to the library and look up on microfilm. Oh, so I remember. It was amazing to see there are ways that you could better evaluate players than win-loss uh, earned an average batting average and being some of the first, um, you know, it was something special, it was kind of magical. So that, that was what the path was. And then once I got into the game, which, you know, this could be a philosophy in, in anything in life, but I found I had to reinvent myself every four years. And this season, um, or this year is the 31st year I've been in the game. So I had to reinvent myself, you know, eight or so d different times. Uh, to, to stay ahead and to stay uh, where I liked, where I'm doing something no one else is doing, be about four or five years ahead of the game. And um, that, at that point, everyone says that's a great idea. They kind of copy it or, um, you know, it becomes more commonplace. And I get bored of that and move on to the next iteration. I love that spirit. So I read uh, where you presented your Caltech thesis titled, How Do You Spell Relief and Analysis of Baseball Pitching 1876 to Present? 
you, that you presented this to the Caltech Board of Trustees. And on that board sat the then owner of the Baltimore Orioles, Eli Jacobs, who then hired you on the spot. Great story. You read it and you're like, oh, wow, that's a really cool story. But I read that and I thought to myself, wait a second. Here's a guy, you who's based your life's work on the predictability of circumstances. So was this, in fact, your plan all along? Like, you knew Eli Jacobs, the owner of the Orioles, was on the Caltech board and that you were going to be essentially almost turning this presentation into a job interview? Because I, I have a hard time believing this was just coincidence. Yeah, it was It's philosophically yeah, hard to say, but it's you know being in the right place at the right time as well as making opportunities for yourself. So yeah. there's some combination of all of that, um, you know, to even get to that place where I was giving a speech to the board of trustees of Caltech, you know, took a year of work for me to come up with ideas, to be able to communicate things succinctly and sound bites, uh, you know, at the time and, and, and be able to present it uh, entertainingly. Um, I had to kind of pass through all of those hoops, the president of Caltech, um, sat in on my presentation and said this would be a great idea to take to our board. So if I hadn't done all the preparation and work, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. But then um, once I did, you know, it was fortuitous that, um, you know, the then owner of the Orioles was on the board and, and in the audience. But, uh, you know, what I had to say was very helpful. It was a world where wins and losses and saves were very valued. Um, earned an average, batting average, uh, and RBIs were very valued. Um, so this was in um, 1989, in the movie Moneyball, which we could always talk about later, 2003, something like that. So yeah. well before that, um, everyone was saying, you know, wins and losses isn't really the best judgment of a pitcher. You know, you can allow one run and get a loss. You can allow 10 runs and get a win, you know. Uh, maybe half, you know, a large part of it is how many runs your team uh, scores when you're pitching. And then there's some other quirkiness, uh, you know, a relief pitcher can allow some runs and you don't get the win. Everyone knew that was kind of wacky uh, statistic, but I was able to not just say these statistics are not accurate, but I came up with a whole new suite of metrics uh, that, that still is in use today, like reliever effectiveness and wherever you see an X before a statistic like expected OPS or yeah. expected ERA was uh, what I presented to the board. So, so it did have value. So half, half of it was the perseverance and actually having something that you can add value. The rest, um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's luck or, or coincidence or uh, fortune or karma, whatever it was, was that he was there. And uh, the funny story uh, was well, even getting there, my car broke down in the middle of the Barstow Desert, <laughs> and the um, woman who played uh, Daisy Dukes on Dukes of Hazard um, happened to pick me up and no get way. me to a gas station. Um, I had no idea it was her. She was very, uh, you know, very nice and like didn't say, "Hey, I used to be an actress on TV." But you know, after the tow truck person came and she made sure I was safe, you know, like an hour, hour and a half out of her day, the gas station says, you do know who that was. Uh, it, it was the actress. But uh, I digress. It was an adventure to get there. Um, and then after I gave the speech, that gentleman raises his hand and says, hi, I'm the owner of the Orioles, and I think 
you have value. I'd like you to work for me uh, this coming season. And, you know, it was an amazing room. Arnold Beckman, who's a legend in chemistry, he came up with a pH meter if something's acidic or base and modernized the test tube. And Rob McNamara, who, uh, you know, was instrumental in the Vietnam War and um, Gordon Moore, who came up with Moore's Law and helped co-found Intel. Just like an incredibly eclectic mix of people were in the audience. He said, I'd like you to work for me. Um, I, uh, I said, I don't, you know, I'm not quite sure who you are, but I, uh, you know, audience, please make sure this gentleman does not leave the room until I talk to him. This is <laughs> opportunity of a lifetime. And everyone laughed. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Yeah, so he, nobody's he joking. Yeah. Um, he did give me a, you know, a formal interview like uh, a week later uh, in person, you know, just to be sure. But, yeah, it worked out very well. And then... I was off to a lifetime of uh, adventures. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. The 20-year-old version of you is now working for the Baltimore Orioles. You're designing and implementing their computer system. This is still early on in teams accepting this, very early on. What do you remember most about that first opportunity with the Major League team? Well, it, it was amazing. I had, you know, uh, I had a paper route grown up, and that was... Uh, I worked for ETS uh, that make the SATs, but that was uh, basically it in terms of my job experience. And then all of a sudden I'm thrust. Um, I'm like, I, I had a dotted line to two people. One was Roland Heenan, who's now in the Hall of Fame. He was my boss on the general manager side. And then my other boss was Frank Robinson, wow. um, who's also in the Hall of Fame, and he was the manager. So as a teenager... If you could believe that, that, that was, it was like so different, um, that like the brain couldn't comprehend it. So I just kind of went with it and just had so much fun. Uh, you know, uh, 20 years old, still in college. Uh, it was just a lot of fun, but it was also fun since I was able to help the organization and, uh, you know, we, we could talk about cultural adoption, but the, uh, you know, some teams still are against some of the analytics, but back then, um, mo- most of the people in the organization really embraced it. And, you know, in, in a way, it was, it was almost great that other teams weren't fully adopting uh, technology or analytics, yet we were. Um, so we had a lot of uh, really good advantages. So, um, you know, j- just working, I-, I guess one of the cool things was, Earl Weaver, who was a a prior, recent prior manager, uh, people look at him as old school, but he was one of the innovators of analytics and that he uh, helped popularize lefty-righty splits. So setting your batting order, if if you know the opposing pitcher is going to be starting pitcher, lefty or righty, or when you pinch it in the eighth or ninth inning, you bring in a lefty or a righty. And he would have these index cards in the dugout before every game that would guide him. And people were pretty hostile to him from the media to the fans to other managers saying he's going to ruin the game. You can't have numbers speak for you. And he's like, you know what? I don't care if the media laughs at me or insults me. If it helps me win games, and I looked at it myself, these numbers can't help me win games, I'm going to do it. And then if we start winning as a team, then, you know, people will get on my side. So one of my first 
jobs was to help automate the uh, index cards, which used to be somebody calculating it by hand before every game. So I would use computer programs to automate that and come up and with a printout <clears throat> looking at every game that was played, every matchup uh, for data that we had on, you know, multiple years going in the past. Um, so that was one automation. And then we came up with one of the first abilities to uh, take scouting reports that were typically, that were 100% handwritten, put into file cabinets. So you would have five to 10,000 scouting reports, handwritten in a file cabinet. The general manager wanted to say, you know, who is the, you know, who are some good third basemen in the Royals organization? Okay. It, it would take about two or three weeks to have interns uh, file through all of the, uh, uh, all the handwritten reports and you know, come up with the answer. So I, digitized it all and uh, the general manager themselves had an easy interface where all they could do is select third baseman, triple A and double A, left-handed, uh, you know, a prospect where it's a seven or eight, which, which means they're like a future all-star. And the answer would come back within a you know, quarter of a second. Um, the GM loved it. Uh, the scouts actually loved it. Since in, in addition to their reports being kind of, in the cobwebbed file cabinets, they would be read much more frequently since the GM you know, could just do what-if type of questions. So those are all really exciting times with the Orioles. One other, just one story, um, what was there is a mid-reliever with the Orioles. They had Greg Olson as their closer. Yep. And they said, you know, we are going to designate for assignment, which basically means let go you know, fire this player, this pitcher. And I said, you know what? Not only sh that should you not do that, you should make uh, him a starter. Um, you know, do the exact opposite. My analytics show and my scouting, you know, observations show that he can throw five pitches. Uh, you know, there's three games that he pitched long enough in relief that he went through the order more than once. And he did very well. Um, and they said, no, we're going to release him. Uh, and of all the players I put my foot down and was, you know, very, I wasn't very vocal in one way, but for this pitcher, I said, you know, you don't fire him, make him a starter. And, you know, it wasn't an immediate uh, conversion to starter, but um, they at least said, you know, we're going to keep him on our team. Uh, that, that pitcher was Kurt Schilling. Oh, uh, wow. Actually, <laughs> did get converted to a starter and they went on to have a great career on the field. Were these the kind so of that, moments? That yeah, that's fascinating. Things. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Are these the kind of moments that allowed you to really convince them of your value? Because I'm even reading now, 30, 40 years later, like we're going to skip to the NFL, but Andy Reid, who just coached the Kansas City Chiefs to the Super Bowl and was just asked about his, how he believes in analytics, and he's still like, yeah, I don't really deal with that stuff. Now, that could right. all just be lying, but I'm just wondering, like, back then in that day, when you were able to have moments like that, is that how you were able to convince people around you and in other organizations that, no, this has value. This isn't just playing with data. This is, this is much deeper than that. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a funny thing that you know there's analytics and then there's still um, you know, there's, there's superstition, there's analytics, there's gut feel, 
and then you know there there's uh you know also like a, a trust so you know i, I kind of had to have both the ability to do the analytics um some cases managers would care some they wouldn't um but, but you know back to your your first point of being actionable you know something like that was actionable don't fire convert somebody uh to a starter um and then you know, I'd moved on from the Orioles to other organizations and started recommending trades that worked out well, like uh, Pedro Martinez, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to the Expos, to the Red Sox. You know, a lot, a lot of trades ended up uh, doing well. Then uh, teams converted me in addition to being a data scientist, but to being a major league scout. So helping recommend trades and in some cases, it would be purely analytical. It would say, you know, the analytics say this pitcher is highly likely to get an injury this season. So I would, you know, urge you not to, to sign them or I'd urge you to get a big discount for the risk. You know, other times it would just be, uh, you know, who can we promote from the minors? I could tell you the Hunter Pence story, but you know, I was uh, you know, one of the key decision makers to call him up to the majors when it wasn't quite clear he, he was a major league player using analytics and using scouting but the more i do stuff like that and there's success then there's more uh, trust involved <clears throat> on the other extreme i've had managers where you know I, I look to collaborate with them i go through you know here is why we should have this uh, batting order uh, to to maximize the chance against this team against this opposing pitcher to maximize our chance of winning and, uh, you know, after a few weeks, the manager, a major league manager came back and said, Ari, I know you're a good guy. I know you're smart. I know you, you know, you explain things pretty well. I was like, I still just don't get it. But he said, you're a smart guy. Just tell me what the lineup is and I'll, I'll set it, which I could not believe. And then, like, I go home and tell my wife, uh, look at the lineup today. I set that. It was just like, and, and then in real life, a real life major league team, has that lineup you know that's totally the other extreme but um you know just shows you the spectrum of of how people uh, react to analytics yeah i was reading uh, to to deep, go deeper into that point you know you've worked with many 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 teams over your your decades in the in the industry but i think one of the most interesting stops at least the way i see it was when you were with the cubs because ownership hired you to help advise on key business decisions throughout the organization it wasn't just when you look at the things that you had to do it wasn't just a singular you know scouting perspective or anything it was like the entire organization you kind of had your fingers in i just wonder was this because you had built up so much credibility in the industry was this the natural growth of analytics or why why were the cubs taking that much of a risk on or that much of involvement with you sure so uh well first of all i had been consulting with the cubs for about 15 seasons but scouting software i mentioned with the um, orioles <clears throat> was something i had developed eventually for 20 of the major league organizations so started getting a reputation around that. Uh, also uh, did that for the Cubs. And then I was a consultant to Andy McPhail uh, when he was the general manager. I was not full-time, uh, but helped uh, you know, get players like Aramis Ramirez and Derek Lee. Um, so started getting some success within the organization as a consultant. And then um, 
I think it was around 2009, they had a sale and a new ownership. The uh, Ricketts family took over, and they, um, uh, you know, Tom Ricketts, who's the chairman, went to University of Chicago, so has that like business, you know, business uh, management consulting uh, appreciation uh, to put metrics and. You know, the organization was, you know, they, they were the, you know, kind of lower end, uh, you know, everything from, you know, lack of a sales CRM, uh, you know, advanced capabilities <clears throat> to, you know, not really having organizational video infrastructure for their minor league players, uh, let alone in, in uh, any in-house analytics. So, you know, he wanted to be more uh, data-driven and, and more modernized. Um, so I had the honor. He only made two hires on the baseball side. It was uh, myself and then Theo Epstein, who later became president, could talk more about that story since it's become public. Um, but yeah, it, it was to be one of his right hand uh, uh, people to help with you know everything in the organization. Uh, establishing this uh, tracking data, it was called Sport Vision at the time, and then later TrackMan at every level, uh, you know, minor league short season, Dominican, so we went from you know, basically being near the bottom uh, or even last in that to being the first organization to implement it uh, at every single level so we can record and, and track all of our players uh, and then revamping our uh, organizational video. And then on the business side, uh, leveraging analytics for everything of what's the ROI of spending money in a Dominican uh, Republic facility to what's the ROI of, uh, uh, of coming up with a new spring training, uh, Sloan Park, um, you know, and, and then you know, being part of the process to identify, recruit, and negotiate for the uh, next GM and president, uh, you know, trying to leverage analytics. So, so yeah, that, that, that was just the ownership, having had that background from University of Chicago is a big trigger. You alluded to a Theo Epstein story in there, and I will tell you, I've had a dream list of people I'd like to have on this podcast, and he is one of them. And if the closest I ever come to that is you actually telling me a story about Theo Epstein, I'm okay with that. So please tell us, tell us your Theo Epstein story. Yeah, yeah. So I, I only, you know, normally you don't, uh, you know, tell stories in baseball unless it's, uh, you know, public knowledge. So wasn't expecting that the story would ever surface, but the uh, uh, owner did uh, first an ESPN interview and then a Chicago Tribune interview talking about the details of how we, you know, selected uh, what was going to be the next GM, but be, you know, how to elevate to the president. So we, did, I, I was the ownership kind of helping lead the, the analytic aspect of, you know, who would a candidate be? You know, we, I, I'd worked with Jim Hendry, who was the GM prior, but he um, got terminated. Um, and, and so, you know, we were looking for search, look, you know, through dozens of different candidates, other GMs, uh, people who used to be GM, but, you know, were, were no longer people who are assistant GMs, head of scouting, head of player development, people from the commissioner's office, uh, other people that, you know, might get creative but could fill that role, perhaps other sports. Uh, who showed success. So we, you know, uh, you know, we did a full evaluation of you know, both the person, but then 
you know, how did they perform in terms of on-field uh, success? Uh, how did they do in terms of scouting? Uh, you know, how did their drafts end up uh, performing? Um, you know, how, the, the managers and coaches they hired were player were they developing players? So, you know, like a pitching coach, once the players came to your organization, did they generally tend to get better or tend to get injured more or get worse? So there's so many different factors, but we uh, wanted to be very careful of, you know, if you don't do well in drafting, um, is that the result of, uh, you know, the, the person you're looking for? Or could it be that they just, uh, you know, we're, we're 30th or, you know, low on the draft uh, selection so that, you know, you don't want to count that against the, their drafting abilities. Um, or if they had tons of compensation picks. So, you know, the first round they have five players, you know, you don't want that to inadvertently make the person look better than they were. So, uh, you know, we, we did all of that and, you know, whittled it down to a couple folks and the owner, you know, also did a, a bunch of calls around to, um, you know, talk about personality and things of that nature. So, yeah, it was great to be a part of that. And then there was, a, you know, also got to the public of, you know, the Red Sox not, you know, it's a, traditionally, if you, uh, you, you have to ask ownership permission to interview with another organization and traditionally, or like the, the, you know, the unspoken agreement is if it's for a promotion, you know, you always just let them go. But in this case, the Red Sox, uh, you know, publicly it got out, wanted uh, players in return. So it was uh, interesting that I got involved in evaluating players and trying to figure out what players would be in exchange for uh, a front office executive. So that that's uh, kind of the gist of the story. Yeah, so I, this is the point where I tell you that I'm I'm a Boston a Bostonian, born and raised, and a, and a Red Sox fan, and that was a painful time for me. I'm just going to be honest with you. So uh, I've learned to get over it, though. So yeah, that's uh, it's a really fascinating story about how your role has expanded as you've gone through your career. Um, you mentioned something earlier that stood out to me. You talked about how you had to be able to the, the manager you were speaking with about setting the lineup that. He said to you, you're always able to explain things well, but I don't necessarily get it. So how big of a part of that, uh, of this whole scenario is being able to take complex things and make them easily understood? Because I would think anybody that wants to work in analytics has to be able to translate and speak to people in a way that they can absorb it. Is that a really important part of this? Yeah, that, that that's... Yeah, the, one of the most huge parts is taking actionable information, um, making it explainable, uh, and making it trustworthy. So trustworthy means, uh, you know, you, the data is reliable, uh, you're not misinterpreting things, you have enough information, uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, no model is completely perfect, but you know, some are better than others is one of the things in data science. But, you know, you have to trust it. You have to be able to explain it and then communicate it. And what I found is people, whether they're players, managers, GMs, uh, think either uh, like like a computer, like, um, 
like Ryan Dempster, player I worked with. Um, yep. You could just give him raw data uh, or a spreadsheet, and he could just look at it, interpret it himself. Uh, Brady Anderson, uh, you know, another person who just looks at tons of data, gets it. Um, other players, you need to um, be visual. So like a heat map, like an image for a batter of where this pitcher is most likely to, to throw or a pitcher to have a heat map of a batter. It's very visual. In their mind, as they're pitching, they're looking at like a red target or a green tar- target. Um, and then other players are more uh, like auditory. They need an English sentence like, um, you swung at 87 sliders below the zone this year and you got zero hits. Don't do that. Okay. Um, uh, and then others, like a little more attention deficit, uh, you know, they can't think more, they can't think either anything or maybe there's only one or two nuggets of information uh, when you come to the plate. Kirk Gibson uh, in the 88 World Series comes to the plate, you know, if it's a, a, a two-strike count or, you know, full count off Eckersley, he throws a backdoor slider. You know, that's the one thing he needed to remember. Yeah. Um, you know, or if it's low, let it go. They can't, like, think in numbers. So, like, like the explanation, uh, how you communicate is also part of uh, understanding the people you're talking to and what, like, what form you're communicating, visual, auditory, raw data, um, what, what resonates best with them. That's fascinating. So you teach this. You teach baseball analytics and data science and analytics with our friends at Sports Management Worldwide via an eight-week online course. This is intense stuff. There's a lot to it. What's your approach to teaching this highly in-demand skill set? Right. So, yeah, it's at SMWW Sports Management Worldwide organization that does online, um, uh, you know, everything from... weekly chats with myself um, where they get to ask uh, make make it interactive you know any question that they want but I put it in perspective of somebody who's in the industry who is as transparent as I can be um, you know get a sense of what it's actually like and then you know more of the the actual tangible skill sets like um, uh, programming languages like Python uh, data science like R, um, you know, data robot, which is a machine learning, deep learning automation tool to, um, you know, visualizations, um, you know, th- things of that nature. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot more going on in the class, but even well, the nice thing is uh, these skills are highly in demand, even during the pandemic, uh, you know, Machine learning, analytics, data science is, you know, of the skill sets, one of the more, uh, uh, you know, agile ones that that, uh, companies across every industry are looking for. So, you know, the fallback, if you don't make a career in baseball, you know, the the payout and job opportunity is really strong. I think Glassdoor said data science skills are number two, uh, you know, in the technology scope. Uh, but to help get a job in baseball, and I've had uh, you know, great students, but you know, dozens of them ending up getting uh, jobs in the game. Some of them were already uh, in the game, like 
uh, famously Mike Matheny, who is the Cardinals manager, took uh, my course to, uh, you know, kind of round out his analytical skills and ended up uh, uh, working with the uh, Kansas City Royals. But, you know, I've had uh, former general managers, current GMs, um, uh, you know, one, one of the more fun students, uh, Federico Rojas, was the GM of Venezuelan team, the Trotamundos, and, um, and ended up winning the championship for the team for the first time in 13 years. But then, you know, we get students working in the game and, and scouting, player development, uh, managing their track man equipment. Uh, there's tons of sensor data, Rapsodo, Last Motion. These are companies that measure um, faults. But yeah, I had, had several dozen students ending up working in the game. I don't want to make it seem that it's easy to do. You know, the odds are greatly against you just since there's so many different applicants. But you know, these are great skills uh, to, to have uh, in, in and out of baseball. Yeah, so there's a that's really I mean I didn't know that about Mike Matheny. That's really interesting that he was the manager of the Cardinals and he wanted to improve his knowledge of analytics and so he took your course and get, ended up getting hired by the Royals. I mean that's a that's a great case for what you're teaching right there. But that's a pretty high level person. Does this make sense for somebody? This course makes sense for someone that's entry more on the entry level side or just getting started in things or does it do, do they really have to have that background knowledge? No, I I'd say it's um, you know, no knowledge uh, necessary. Uh, having a passion for the game is, uh, you know, or a passion for analytics is, is all that's needed. And, you know, pe- people take the course for different reasons. Most of them, uh, you know, I would say three. One of them, you're already in the game. You're, you know, uh, you know I have a, a minor league, I, I have a double A manager, um, a former major league uh, uh, pitcher. And I have uh, three people that are currently working in the game right now in, in my current course. So, but they're looking to kind of upskill. I'm in the game. I want to learn more about analytics, uh, natural curiosity, or it'll help them, uh, you know, get to the next level. The, most of the people are students or professionals in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that want to switch from their current career getting into the game. Um, that's probably the majority. And then there, there are also the third type of people are people that just, you know, I love baseball. I just want to have fun, take a course, uh, you know, get the inside scoop. Um, I'm a mega fan. Let me do that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, no prior background needed. I talk to people and, you know, I, I basically am there to educate and, uh, you know, people during the chat ask any question of any level. I would think aspiring journalists are considered as well. I mean, it seems like a there's more and more data being used to help them tell their stories or get insight or see things through a different prism in a way. And that because that's where I come from. That's my background is on the journalism side. And I've, I find a lot of the the way that uh, younger audience is digesting some of the information is through the data. And so maybe journalists would be a, a smart angle for you as well. So one, one, one question I had, you, I interviewed the director of talent acquisition for the Cleveland Indians a while back. And when I asked her about the greatest areas of growth where they hire, she said, without batting an eye, business analytics, understanding how mm-hmm. we as an organization can save money or make money. So I wonder if someone studies baseball analytics or your data science and analytics class, 
are, are they by getting to understand R and Python and SQL and some of those things that you talked about, does that translate? I'm, I'm just really speaking of this from a position of ignorance. Does that does that same skill set translate to business analytics as well? And can they apply that knowledge in various ways, which I think would be pretty valuable in this time of coronavirus when teams are losing revenue? They're going to look for ways to make that up and to be more efficient. Do the same processes kind of cross over? Yeah, a hundred percent. So like, like at data robot, we have, you know, many customers across sports, uh, uh, you know, maybe half of them, uh, leverage the analytics on the, on the team side. But, uh, I believe every single one of them is using analytics on the business side. So business side is everything from, uh, predicting, uh, attendance to setting uh, price for your tickets. Um, like that, you know, dynamic ticket pricing to understanding, segmenting your customers to, um, you know, where, where do you do your marketing, uh, television ad, uh, is it worth it to translate and run a commercial in Spanish, <clears throat> for example. So on the business side, you're seeing every team, um, you know, ramp up with one, two, three, four, five data scientists or business analysts on the business side. That is uh, definitely picking up. Interestingly, um, uh, since you said you're a Red Sox fan, you know, the Red Sox are one of my uh, publicly known customers, and we just did a webinar where the uh, you know I did a quick introduction, and then the Red Sox uh, walked through how they're using data science to do business analytics oh, wow. with real life use cases and actual data on how much money they make, how they view. Uh, you know, segmenting customers basically means, you know, you're a, a rich person in Boston that never goes to a game, or you're a poor college student that can only go to one game. You know, how do you identify households, individuals? How do you market and how do you measure it? Right. So if you Google that, you know, Data Robot Red Sox webinar, uh, I think you would love seeing that as well. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take a look at that. It's your course. I just want to make sure we get this out there too. Your course in baseball analytics and data science, two separate courses. Uh, anyone interested can get the information on smww.com and can register for your upcoming classes. I think they should. This is a really fascinating and growing world. And let's finish up with that. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I'm really appreciative of all your time that you've given us today. And I'm sure you answer this question a lot, but I'm going to ask it anyway way has analytics reached its peak or is this still a growing field yeah great question i would say it's, it's grown immensely um you know every few years people think oh it's re reached its peak how much more um you know information can you use um and then someone comes up with a new technique or development um so the uh you know you mentioned business analytics so now it's spread from the baseball side to the business side, and teams are you know, looking to double or triple their staff there. Um, about a, a, two years ago, this company, Driveline Baseball, started showing success on measuring uh, you know, mechanics of a, of a pitcher and mechanics of a batter, and having these experts not just capture the data, but coming up with recommended plans on how can you improve your pitching and your hitting? Um, and now teams are looking to get actually these types of people at every level of you know minor leagues to the majors. So that's like five to seven 
um, pitching coaches, uh, and five to seven hitting coaches per organization. So hundreds of opportunities. And then, you know, that's not even close to being filled. <clears throat> and now with this video analysis, you can take uh, using, uh, it's called deep learning. You can have like a computer vision, look at video. Um, it could be Babe Ruth playing, um, you know, in the twenties, it could be a high schooler as long as you have video and it could, um, make metrics off of that video. How fast was his bat swing? What was his swing plane? Wow. Uh, what was his hip separation? Um, uh, uh, automatically and then finding data from that. That is just starting. Only a handful of teams are doing that. Um, Stats Inc., uh, not far from me in Chicago, has that capability uh, that they're selling. And, and there are a couple other companies that have uh, sprouted up that uh, also take video and make measurements out of that. That's just starting, capturing it and then making sense of it. <clears throat> and then, you know, looking at like a 10-year time frame, uh, you know, one of the things I, I realized having worked multiple decades is as a major league scout, you want to look at a player in their lifetime, which is from high school or college to draft to minors to the majors. You really need to have the knowledge of seeing where and how players have succeeded and failed to make comparisons to new players um, in 2020. Similarly with data science, you know, we're just capturing this video. We're just capturing the driveline type of data. Um, a lot of the data sensors are not even installed in all the minor leagues yet. And even with them, you need 10 or 15 years of data to make uh, you know, these lifetime uh, uh, type of predictions. And right. we don't have that data yet. Um, so I, I think we're, we're good for at least 10 more years. Oh, such fascinating stuff. Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to have to do this again because I feel like I was jotting down notes of more questions I want to ask and more stuff we can dig into because it is such a fascinating field. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, Brian, and, and thanks to you and thanks to all the listeners, and I'd be happy to come back. I really love speaking to people who are way, way, way more intelligent than I am because I feel like when I ask them questions, they always have a really smart answer and I always have a lot of questions and that may be an unfair burden to put on somebody like Ari, but he sure didn't let me down in that interview. That was awesome. And I just kept riffing and throwing questions at him and he always had a handle on it. I love that. Thanks for listening and being part of this show. Please rate and review wherever you listen. It helps us remain near the top of podcast distributors and brings in new audience members, which I love. And if you like me doing this show, I can always use the help of your rating and review. 